Now, uh, but I would like to think that I am I had improved as an entertainer, and I like to get the rapport with an audience because it's a give and take thing. If you can if you can do that, it works. Can get that kind of rapport going with the audience. It pays off. It's good. Are you born with destiny? Or does it just come knocking at your door? There's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. I'm a big stage and big screen person. I love being swept away by seeing and feeling and experiencing content in its best possible fashion. I love laughing and crying and applauding and when warded, standing with a thousand other strangers to, to cheer a performance. So it was so beautiful to get back to the movies and I couldn't ask for a better film than Elvis. Two Oscar winning performances, Austin Robert Butler just crushes Elvis and Tom Hanks, of course, superb acting, delivering the role of Colonel Tom Parker. This film should be studied in humanities and business schools. Now, I've read a lot about Elvis, I've visited Graceland, but now I have a better understanding of how Elvis succeeded despite difficult circumstances. He truly was a long shot when you learn about his childhood and his unforgivable circumstances and how his career and artistry were managed. Early age, his dad's put in prison and he and his mom lived in the poorest neighborhood. Down south in the United States, segregation was the norm. He's a white kid surrounded by African Americans and that was a gift the world still benefits from because Elvis discovered their love for music, dance, gospel, and their family and community values. Now, as Elvis started to become noticed, a naive Elvis and his family were so vulnerable to signing a contract, they became a lifetime of financial, mental, and career abuses by his manager, Colonel Tom Parker. And Elvis constantly had to choose between his authenticity and his dreams and those who wanted to manipulate him for their own benefit. I can only imagine what Elvis would have done as a solo artist if he had a management team that served his interests versus theirs. Just how important it is to believe in yourself and have others believe in you. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today has got a title, Reverend Dr. Gordon Postal. He's written a book titled Called A Long Shot Story. It's his memoir of life, of dissipation, to one of spiritual purpose. I'm sharing a story with you as proof that no matter how tough life is or how far you feel you're off the beaten path, you still have a shot if you believe in yourself in a higher purpose and you find others who believe in you. Dr. Reverend Postel, welcome to Chatter That Matters. <laughs> great, great to be with you and your listeners, Tony. Now we're gonna go through some times when you surrender to alcohol and drugs, you're in the wrong side of the law, but we're also gonna talk a lot about how you managed to put these pieces back together again. But first, just to set context, let's get back to your childhood and talk about where did you grow up and what was your family situation like? I was born in 1948 in uh, Toronto, uh, Ontario, Canada, kind of a middle class area, growing up pretty normal. Um, as, a, as a young boy, of course, hockey, hockey was a big thing, playing ball hockey out on the street, you know, or in the summer playing touch football. Went to a good grade school, public school. But there were a few things about my upbringing that were different than uh, 
than some of my peers. Uh, you know, I wasn't aware of them to the extent that I'm aware of them now when I was growing up. My parents, you know, they were reasonably well off. We didn't want for anything, but they, um, you know, they didn't own their house. We rented a house. So a lot of my peers, uh, parents owned the house and uh, we didn't have a car. My father's job, he was away a lot, of, you know, on the train. At that time, there was a Canadian Pacific Railroad and the Canadian National Railroad. So, you know, we used public transportation and could walk a lot of the places that I went. I had a, an accident when I was uh, playing with some friends. I was about eight years old. I fell on the uh, tiled floor of our rec room downstairs and severely chipped one of my front teeth. And that kind of changed my life for a number of years. You know, I was, it made me sort of feel insecure, uh, just about, you know, my image, my smile, you know, and my parents also, you know, it was obvious to me that they didn't get along as well as my friends' parents. Uh, so I enjoyed spending a fair bit of time uh, in my friend's house. You talk about in your book that one of the ways your dad kind of escaped not a healthy relationship is he, he was passionate about getting this outdoor rink going for you and your sister in the backyard. In retrospect, he was fairly emotionally shut down. He could he could engage people on a on a kind of a superficial level. He, that that's where he felt comfortable, but to go beneath that, you know, was not something that he he did. One of the things that he was very committed to doing, we had a we had a nice backyard, good sized backyard, and so every uh, winter he would spend hours out there in you know, in pretty cold temperatures. And he would flood the rink, he'd make the rink, put some uh, little uh, planks of board around the perimeter of the rink. He wasn't a technical guy at all, but he, um, he was able to rig a couple of floodlights out on the clothesline so we could, uh, we could skate and play hockey at night. You know, I can't imagine how many broken windows he fixed from errant pucks flying by. That was probably the most powerful expression of his love for me and my sister. And in retrospect, it was a, it served many purposes for my dad because he could be doing something for us. He could also be getting away from my mother and, uh, he could be just having some downtime. My episode with Susan Kane, who wrote Quiet, The Power of Introverts, just talks about how we don't acknowledge that introverted people really like their own space and, and they think and we expect everybody to be sort of this, uh, this peacock. There's a couple of parallels that we have in our life. I mean, we didn't own a car. We did a lot of walking. The way I uh, went through elementary school and high school. It sounds like we're very similar, which was do very little. And then right before the exam, cram. And I love what you say in your book that it was almost like auto-deleted as you walked out of the exam. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you know, I've come to realize that I, I have a pretty good memory. I'm very good at memorizing things. I was able to get by at school. Like, and in retrospect, I think I was bored at school. Back then, I mean... You know, the teachers meant well. I think, you know, the system was in place, but essentially, if you could, if you could pare it back to the teachers in an exam, you know, what they were looking for, you were golden pretty well. And so for me, that wasn't rocket science. You know, I had a pretty good ability at discerning what was important. And then I could, uh, you know, at night, 
before an exam, you know, I could just sort of cram the material. I would be able to jot down things that in a way that I could remember them, just the high points, cutting right to the chase. I prided myself. I never took home any books, pull an all-nighter if necessary. or And then I'd go in and I would get like a B plus, say. 20 minutes later, I wouldn't remember any of the material, but I didn't. Who, who cared? <laughs> so your parents separate. How old were you when that happened? I think it was a, when they formally separated, I believe I was about 16. Uh, but for a few years before that, my dad, we were living in Toronto. He was working. He did a lot of work in Northern Ontario. So I ended up getting a, he became a boarder in a house, an elderly couple. He rented a room from them in Sudbury, Ontario. And so he ended up like, that was his home base, really. He used to come home every weekend. And then he started coming home every other weekend. And then eventually, I think my mother, who was very frustrated with, with the relationship, and I think my dad was as well. They, they just decided, you know, like, don't come home anymore. How did that impact you? Even though parents sometimes think that their children are old enough, it does impact you because your two anchors suddenly become one. Well, you know, in a way, for me, it was a relief. You know, my dad had been, for the most part, physically and emotionally absent throughout my life. And there was always this kind of undercurrent of tension between my parents you know, that I noticed as I was getting older. And so, uh, quite frankly, when my parents formally separated, it was kind of a relief for me. You know, see you, love you, bye, Dad. <laughs> it was a cold, overcast, and windy day, and the big ice was breaking up. Chunks were flowing at a good speed, and a number of people had gathered on the shore to check out the sights. At some point, without any forethought, I left the shore and soon found myself impulsively jumping from ice floe to ice floe. I lost my footing on the slippery chunks of ice several times and fell into the freezing water. Each time I struggled to climb back onto the floes, I cut my hands on the sharp edges. Riding the blocks of ice and looking back to the shore, I saw several people beckoning for my safe return. Totally unfazed and full of disdain, I defiantly kept going. After somehow making it back to shore, I had a sense of foreboding that this intimate brush with death had merely been a mild precursor of what lay ahead. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, Presented by RBC. My guest today is Dr. Gordon Postel. Dealing with parents' breakup, he searches for a path in life that leads him far from the promised land. So you talk about when your sister goes off to boarding school, your mother kind of just overpowers you with attention and love, and that created some friction in its own right, didn't it? My mom was kind of the near opposite of my dad. You know, my dad was sort of emotionally absent, whereas my mother... I think she longed for relationships of some depth. So when my dad left and my sister was then in boarding school, I'm sure it was unconscious. You know, I think she had a loving intent, a caring intent, but she would almost kind of like to kind of know all about my day and 
all about me. Unfortunately, I don't think she ever found her niche in life and certainly never found the right partner for herself. And so I think uh, on an unconscious level, she was kind of trying to live her life through me. If I could be successful, she could experience some of that success for herself as my mother. Certainly in grade 12 and 13 back then, I just realized like, you know, I got to come up for some air here. You need some space. Yeah. So I love the lyrics to Maggie May. It reminded me when I was reading your book. Suppose I could collect my books and get back to school or steal my daddy's cue and make a living out of playing pool. You talk about it with some humor about how the pool hall became your your place to escape. Your mom wouldn't follow you in. You could Even with that chipped tooth, you could have your own identity. So talk a little bit about what you discovered about yourself there. And then we're going to move to kind of where the spiral starts going the wrong way. There was a great pool hall, uh, you know, about a mile from where I lived. It was it was not like a seedy downtown pool hall. And a, a number of my classmates, you know, used to go up there. And then there were some, there were a couple of older fellas that were real hustlers there. Often, you know, you, you, you'd shoot pool and the loser would pay for the table. Or you could, you know, maybe, you know, have a few dollars involved. Not, nothing, you know, huge. But for me, I just found that being up at the pool hall and just hanging out with some folks just kind of gave me, uh, you know, I felt comfortable there. I, and I think for a long time, you know, I never really felt at ease with myself. But somehow shooting pool... In, in that pool hall. And then I wasn't a great pool player, but I was, I, you know, I, I had some skill and I would occasionally go down to Bloor and Young in Toronto. There was a pool hall there in the subway down underground. I, I played in that pool hall. I know exactly okay, where it is. Okay. Yeah. So I would actually go down there, you know, and I had a pool cue, you know, I kind of. The case and everything, up, yeah. And I actually, you know, played for, you know, some money there. And uh, one more than I lost. You find your way through high school and somehow you get early acceptance to Queen's University and Kingston. And for people that aren't familiar with Queen's University, it's a very prestigious university in Canada. But when you get there, you find that you're saying, I don't really know why I'm there. I mean, there's people like these people want to be engineers and doctors. I have no idea. So how did that impact you? I mean, you're already going in there with a little bit of insecurity, the way you look, and you don't have this sense of uh, attacking life, did that have a profound impact in sort of the direction you're about to take? You know, I was so relieved to be getting out of the house and I'm going to Queens. I I didn't want to stay at my mom's and go to U of T. I was really thinking that my life had just arrived because I had my front tooth finally capped. So I had a great smile, the great exodus. And I arrive at Queens and I'm in one of the men's residences, you know, and so there's some other peers there. And the co-eds like were just like, knock your socks off, you know. So hormones are raging, like I'm ready, you know, like uh, I, a theme song of mine had been the Stones, you know, the great, and I can't get no satisfaction. Well, well I was ready for some satisfaction. But the first week there, it was called Frosh Week Orientation. I realized, like, I'm really insecure around these co-eds. Went to a few dances. Just couldn't seem to muster up the gumption to ask someone to dance. Or on occasion when I did, 
when the dance ended, you know, I had no idea what to say or, and so I was really dispirited. And I realized like my problems are far more than a chipped front tooth. I also had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Some of my uh, roommates, residents, uh, friends, uh, you know, doctors, lawyers, teachers, I was really at my wit's end until taking a couple of strong swigs out of a bottle of black velvet whiskey, the magic hit me. <laughs> and, that, and that became your social lubricant, but it very quickly manifested itself from just kind of uh, a little bit of courage to have a conversation. It started to take over your life. It took me a, a few times to learn how much I could drink uh, without falling down and looking ridiculous. I felt like uh, I was comfortable in my own skin. My life had caught up to me. You know, when I went to class, they were all terribly boring for me. <laughs> Heck with this. And so my, my whole life then revolved around getting a good buzz, playing cards, and then going out, you know, uh, looking, for, looking for women you know, waking up the next day and doing it all over again. It, it was kind of vacuous. And then I discovered, of course, weed and LSD. And and it was great until it was no longer great. The second year, you know, you've got a girlfriend, you've got substances, everything raging. I mean, it all falls apart that year, doesn't it? I met this knockout woman, Helen T. My whole second year, you know, I was had no interest in going to class, spent all my time with her. And she ended up unexpectedly leaving me, which I can't really blame her for. Then I started to have a little glimpse of where is all this going? That was the time where you might have turned it around. But instead of turning it around, you end up as a nickel miner. So I failed my second year. Third year, I had no drive whatsoever. I really didn't care. I left Queens, thought that I had failed that year too, but I didn't know for sure because I had spent all the money on alcohol and drugs. So I never got my transcript because uh, I owed the university, uh, you know, some money. I was starting to feel really ashamed, disheartened. I realized the mines, that would be a perfect place to hide. Here I am, in 1967, I had taken a train out of Union Station, heading off to Queen's University. Three years later, I'm taking a train from Union Station up to Sudbury to work underground for INCO, the International Nickel Company. Your alcohol and drugs just got worse there. And because I was working shift work, you know, most people, me included, uh, you just have a terrible time trying to trying to sleep because your system is so screwed up. Back then, Inco had a great, great drug plan. And one of the drugs that everybody recommended was Valium. And so I started taking Valium and the recommended dosage is uh, five milligrams. I'm going to start taking 10, 15, 20. And of course, if you're drinking and you're taking something like that, that's, it's amazing that I, you know, didn't kill, you know, that I, that I didn't die. I realized in the mines going down in the, in the cage and you're crammed in there with like 40, 40 miners with their lunch buckets between their legs. But I realized like, God, I can't be doing this forever. And that's when I ended up deciding like, I got to finish my BA. 
And so I ended up paying the university back, you know, the money. I got my transcript. I had actually passed, miraculously, repeat of my second year. So I needed six courses to get a BA, which I ended up getting at Laurentian University, working midnights in the mines and taking courses in the daytime. How much pain during this time did you cause your mom, who really lived vicariously through you? You were the person that was going to be the life that she she dreamt about. Yes. Uh, you know, my mother, you know, she was devastated by how how my life was going. And, and, you know, I also started to come to realize then, and I would for the next several years, I had no moral compass, you know, and basically I was out for myself, good liar. I was not a very uh, nice person, really. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Gordon Postal. He's written a book titled Called A Long Shot Story. At this point in his life, he's a long shot from normality, but things change and we'll soon find out why. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. My guest is Gordon Postel. He's a quick brain, broken family, social awkwardness, and alcohol and drugs put him on a path towards a collision and even oblivion. But as we assume here, a calling reframes his life as one worth living. And that calling has, in fact, helped thousands of people. So you spent six years in this downward and dangerous spiral, often going from bad to worse. Your book describes your life as increasingly dispirited, feeling irreversible, existential despair, promiscuous sex, jaws ranging from a nickel miner to a security guard. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a beautifully paved road in any way. Did you ever think during those six years that your life wasn't worth it? Because I've talked to people like that. They go, well, why am I even here? Or did you just feel that you still had enough that, as you said, out for myself, that it was worth keeping going. Yeah, I think as those years went on, I really, on some level, really hoped that I would die. And actually, when I was in Sudbury, working in the mines, I, I ended up being in a room with a few people who were pretty far gone. And uh, one guy then pulled out a gun, suggested maybe we play Russian roulette. I remember I took the gun, uh, and then I realized, like, I thought I was going to be ill and ended up leaving. And I went downstairs and got into bed and just shook for quite a while, realizing like I came very close maybe to killing myself there. So I think during those six years as they went on, if I could get laid in stone, the day would be okay. But that was really becoming uh, less and less uh, satisfactory. So I'm not sure how much longer I would have gone on and perhaps uh, overdose or intentionally kill myself. So your book's titled Calling, and I want to now talk about that moment in your life where you choose a very different path, not one spiraling downwards, but a foothold that actually not only reclaims your life, but as I said in the introduction, you've helped thousands of people since. So tell me that moment and what really happened. 
I think uh, what helped make that possible, I had a friend who was a chartered accountant, and he told me about this program at the University of Windsor, where if you had a BA, you could go and you could get a degree, a bachelor of commerce degree, and you even get an MBA. Because I thought, you know, I don't know if I have a calling, but at least this would give me some kind of credible job opportunity. I was actually doing pretty well then. Uh, I cut back a bit on my drinking and was getting pretty good marks. But then one uh, fall, it was in October of 76, I came home from writing a, a, a pretty important exam and I thought I'd aced it. I'd crammed, you know, for it, of course. I just needed a change from reading business stuff. And for some reason, the only other book I had in my dump of a furnished apartment of which I lived in thousands of them was a little Bible from my Sunday school, Leaside United <laughs> Sunday School. It was given to me in 1958 when I was 10. And I remembered, you know, I really like literature. And I remembered that the book of Revelation had a lot of uh, allegory in it, a lot of really great metaphors. I wasn't looking for any religious contact, uh, content per se. I had been a longtime non-churchgoer, no real interest in spiritualities. But anyways, I picked up this uh, Bible, started reading the first chapter of Revelation, and within a minute or two, you know, and reading words like, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, you know, I am alive, uh, behold you are... I all of a sudden I found myself felt like I was being swept to the floor by a huge wave. And I found myself kneeling on the floor, sobbing, feeling this incredible sense of being loved and accepted and understood in a way that I had never felt before. And into my consciousness came the words, follow me, become a minister. Are you kidding me? I, you know, the, the whole experience didn't last very long. And sort of when I came out of it, I just thought, you know, I've lost my mind. But there was something about the experience that just resonated on a really deep level with me. So I did not really choose the ministry. I was chosen. I quit the business program the next day, even though I was doing well. In order to become a minister, United Church of Canada, you had to have a master's of divinity degree. So you three-year degree, you have to go to seminary. And there was a seminary in Toronto, Emmanuel College, part of um, Victoria University, University of Toronto. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, at least let's do it on my home turf. Uh, so I, I ended up getting accepted into that uh, program, and that wasn't a big deal. But the, the bigger challenge for me, though, was I had to find a United Church congregation that would endorse me as their candidate for ministry. And that was going to prove to be a huge problem. I can't imagine that your resume would be one that they would they would get to the top of. The, so how did you go about doing that? I was living in a furnished room. I was working as security guard. I was working in a furnished room right around Russell Hill Road in St. Clair in Toronto. Actually a nice area. And I was living in the best furnished room I'd ever been in. And right around the corner on my way to my security guard job, 
I would pass this prestigious, magnificent edifice, Timothy Eaton United Church, Timothy Eaton Memorial United Church. And then I realized, like, perhaps I could phone them, explain my situation a little bit, and they might know of some outpost uh, struggling congregation that might take a chance on someone like me. And this is where, you know, talk about grace. The person who answered the phone call, I didn't know it at the time, was the senior minister of that congregation, Reverend Dr. George Morrison, who never got the phone. I mean, the receptionist would get the phone or his executive secretary would get the phone. But he picked up the phone. I explained my situation a bit to him. And he said, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, you know, well, actually, I'm pretty free this afternoon. He said, why don't you come over, ask for uh, Dr. Morrison, and uh, let's chat. And then I ended up going there. I didn't have to really spell it all out for him. He could read between the lines. But I felt this incredible generosity of spirit from him. He had me come back uh, a week later and meet with a couple of his associates. And then he had me meet with the session of the church, uh, committee of the session of the church who who were in charge of all these kinds of things. And lo and behold, I became a candidate for the ministry from Timothy Eaton Memorial Church. I want to fast track a bit because I really want to get to what you've done with this. But you not only get your do your master's, you get your doctorate as well. I have to believe with your strategy for getting to learn had to change because I'm not sure you can cram to get those types of degrees. I mean, there's much more philosophy and, and humanities. And How did you start applying your brain into that situation? And what did you learn about yourself doing so? Yeah. And to put that in a context, you know, when I began that first day at seminary in, in September of 77, with about 40, 45 classmates, all who were very churched, all who had been very successful, very responsible people. And, you know, there I am, you know, a rookie Sunday school teacher. That was my first assignment at Timothy. And I thought, I think they gave me that just to see if I was going to be serious about it. But in any event, you know, that first couple of years, you know, I, I got sober uh, and I met a great woman in that first month that I was there. We ended up living together. So she was a really pivotal for me. But I realized in the second semester of my first year, and I was drinking more, I wasn't getting enough sleep. I had, I was delivering Globe and Mail papers, you know, just to make a living. But I realized like, if I'm going to have a shot at this ministry thing, which I still wasn't totally convinced of, I've got to quit drinking because I knew it was only a matter of time before I went on some kind of expletive-laced uh, rant in a classroom or at the church, and it would be over. My life would be over. It happened in my second year at seminary, where one of the professors at uh, one of the colleges asked me, what do you think, Gordon? Because I was no longer drinking, uh, I, I started to do some critical thinking of my own, and that carried on through my third year. And then a few years later, when I was doing a doctor in ministry degree at Boston University, by then, uh, you know, I was, in a sense, I could put the pedal to the metal. So what did you meet your wife, Robin, through all of this? In 1980, 
in the United Church of Canada back then, unless there was some, you know, serious uh, health issue or family issue, uh, newly ordained ministers were sent really to outposts in the country. I lucked out because I was sent to beautiful Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, right on the Cabot Trail in the Margaree Valley. So I had three small country churches. There were some nice beaches close by, and I was still single. I, I wasn't drinking, but I was still interested in women, and I didn't feel shy around women anymore. I, and so Robin and her sister, younger sister, they had come up from Boston. She was um, taking her sister on a graduation, uh, gave her a present for a graduating uh, trip around for the Maritimes, 10-day trip. And so early in their trip, I met them on the beach. And I, I felt really attracted to Robin. We were talking about literature. She was a little taken back that I was a minister and really wasn't into that kind of thing. But, you know, I got her address. And then uh, six months later, I wrote a Christmas card and she wrote back and we ended up writing letters and I think fell in love through our letters. And we were we were married in April of uh, 83. Is that why your doctorate happened in Boston? Yes. You know, she wasn't ready to be like a minister's wife and how would she make a living? She is a very competent, she's a brilliant person. And so uh, we ended up going to Boston. I got accepted into um, the doctor ministry program, which also surprised me because my marks were not, I ended up, I think, with a B average, maybe coming out of a manual with my master's of divinity. But you know, that was an incredible experience. What did you do your thesis on? There had been a, a really uh, renowned guy. His name was James Fowler out of, uh, he was, you know, down in the States. And he had written a book, Stages of Faith. And it was about spiritual development, but it was in a very avant-garde way. And I got into that. I loved that. So I, I designed a program how I could use that in, in parish ministry. I did a lot of clinical work in hospital settings, also, you know, engaging peers in the classroom. And it's like all of a sudden, like I really learned how to think, how to think and how to articulate. You know, there was a liftoff. And tell me a little bit about hospice, because that's something you talk about. I would have to say it's putting Robin aside and your family aside. That is being your true calling. I mean, you've helped so many people. And the way you write about it, the pain that you went through in your youth allowed you to be somebody who had so much more empathy when you were given this calling. Yeah, that's that's very true, you know, and uh, that was my calling, you know, like I was pretty successful in parish ministry, but uh, it, after a few years, it really wasn't feeding my soul. And, you know, and Robin and I just took a chance and we quit our jobs and we moved to Naples, Florida. And, uh, you know, I stumbled into this hospice job. This is what I was meant to do. It became apparent to me, and it, even more so over the years, that a lot of what I went through deepened my capacity for uh, compassion, empathy, my sense of humanity. Although most people didn't tell me this, but some did. Looking at me, you wouldn't know really my journey, but people were able to intuit on some level that I knew what suffering was. I would not run away from their suffering. And so people felt very at ease with me 
sharing some of their inner torment. Also, they could share some of their joys and, you know, things that they had really liked about life. But, but they could also share with me some of their fears, some of their concerns. And they knew that I wouldn't be judging them or trying to tell them what to do, but I would be there sort of as a companion on the journey with them. You know, it was incredibly fulfilling. It was hard for me to say this. My publicist, uh, you know, he, you know, I said, well, I helped a lot of people. I said, well, how many people? I don't know, thousands. He said, well, just say that. It's hard for me to say that, but I have helped thousands of people. More importantly, or as importantly, usually whenever I left visits with hospice patients or families or earlier in my ministry with parishioners, uh, I had this sense of, yes, I had given to them, but they had also given far more back to me. In my ministry, I've always had this sense of reciprocity, which um, not all of my peers unfortunately experience. And so that made ministry for me, you know, so enriching because it's a, it's a two-way thing. And so I wrote this story, you know, tried to be as candid, honest as, as I could, because I was writing it for me. My wife at the time, she told me when it was finished, you know, you should make some copies for your sister. You should make some copies for a few friends. Everybody that read it, the way that I had written my story, in a sense, it had prompted them to look at their own lives and their own stories and that I should really see about getting it published because it could help some folks. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Reverend Dr. Gordon Postal. He's written a book titled Called A Long Shot Story. It's his memoir of life, of dissipation, to one of spiritual purpose. So I want to bring it back, and I know this is a... Uh, I could feel the pain in your book when you talk about this incredible love affair you have with your wife, Robin. One day you start to recognize that she's, she's had Alzheimer's is starting to set in. We used to take nice trips uh, every year and we'd go to places and hike, not camp, but we'd hike like Yosemite, places like that. So we went in uh, October of 2014 for, I think it was 12 days, uh, San Francisco for four days, and then we rented a car, drove down to Carmel, and hiked in Big Sur. And But there were two or three times on that trip where Robin, out of the blue, said to me, kind of frantically, where are we? Where are we? And when she did it the first time, I thought, well, you know, you know, she's been working very hard, and we just sort of started the trip. But then when she did it at least another time, I think twice more, I realized something's up here. And then when we got back and over the next few months, you know, she was telling me that she was having some some issues. And so we ended up deciding in 2015 that she would quit her job before it became apparent that she was having uh, struggles cognitively. And she did. We thought maybe she'd get better take six months off, enjoy the summer, but she wasn't getting better. And then, you know, in 2000 and uh, 
February of 2016, she was diagnosed with a major, you know, brain disorder, eventually uh, diagnosed as um, early onset Alzheimer's. You know, I knew a lot about Alzheimer's, both from my hospice work, you know, seeing patients, uh, but both my parents had Alzheimer's. I wasn't involved directly in their care. Uh, and, and Robin's mother had Alzheimer's. But when it's your, this is my soulmate, she turned to me shortly after getting that diagnosis in 2016 and said to me out of the blue, I don't want to wither. Wow. So very powerful. I thought I was going to pass out for a second, but I felt this clarity that from that moment on, my sole purpose would be to help ensure Robin's well-being, that I was committed to helping her live as fully, as comfortably, as safely, and contentedly for as long as possible. And I committed my, my life to do that. I'd do it all over again. You know, and she trusted me implicitly. And as, you know, as the years went on and she could do less and less, she just allowed me to kind of micromanage her life in many ways. I mean, she's the true hero here. The pain you must have felt when she left you, the reflecting on your life, how important was it for you to write Calling a Long Shot's Journey? Because to me, it was, in some ways, it's, Part of it's written to her. Part of it, it seems to be written to the world. And part of it's almost like a diary that shouldn't be shared. So how did it all come together? I had had open heart surgery in October of 2010. And as a person that had been very fit for a long time, it was a result of a uh, defective aortic valve. But in any event, I ended up having open heart surgery the, the night before the surgery, and I had an aortic aneurysm as well, so the surgery had become more risky, and there was a chance I could die on the table. And I remember thinking that night that if I should die on the table, my life has truly been blessed beyond measure in spite of that. And so uh, I, I everything went great. Uh, I went back to work at hospice and... Uh, Five months later, I felt this deep yearning to go back and visit that decade from 1970 when I flunked out of Queens and was riding ice flows on frozen Lake Ontario to becoming ordained in 1980. Although I'd done a lot of inner work, I'd had a lot of therapy, I still felt I needed to go back and write about that, which I wrote about for myself. Uh, really, I had no intention of sharing that except maybe with Robin. And then uh, some of Robin said, you got to share this with some of your friends, which I did. And everybody thought people need to read this. This could give some people some hope. But I, I, I just wasn't into it at the time. I put it away and I didn't get the manuscript out until, until 2020. And Robin was by this time becoming much more passive. So I could go in and work for an hour or two on the computer, you know, so that's how that, that came into play. And then I, when I sent it to the publisher, they loved it, but they um, said it needed an epilogue because it ended in 1980. So I had to write the epilogue to bring it up to date. And I'm glad of that because I was able to look at those years, but particularly I was able to conclude with 
my beloved Robin. Gordon, I always end my podcast with my three takeaways. And interesting enough, above the calling that day where you fell to your knees and realized that you, you had to find a new path in life, there's three things that really stuck out in this interview. The, the first is the professor saying, what do you think? And you realizing you had this kid with a chipped tooth and probably some imposter syndrome and could BS their way out of it. You actually had something. There was somebody interested in what you thought. The second one was probably the most powerful sentence I've heard yet in my 130 episodes is, I don't want to wither. And that's Robin saying to you, and you realizing that is, even though you helped thousands of people, there was only one person that really needed your help. And then the final thing is you actually being the person talking to yourself when you're on the operating table saying, if I should die, I'm blessed beyond measure. To realize that this 10-year decade and from you know nickel mines and security guard to being ordained and to a life where you get your doctorate, help thousands and thousands of people is just such a wonderful life. And I'm so glad Alba reached out and asked me to uh, chat with you because you truly are an extraordinary guy. And I wish I can actually take a clip of this video and put it out because this kid with a chipped tooth does rocket a great smile. So thank you so much for being part of Chat of the Matters. Well, thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I want to wish you the very best. And it's, it's been a great honor to speak with you and then, uh, you know, with your listeners. For the fans of the show, I know you're going to be happy to hear that one of my most frequent guests, probably number one, her name's Amy Deacon. She's the founder of Toronto Wellness Counseling. Her life is committed to this idea that everybody should be mentally healthy. And she's just an absolute positive source of humanity. Amy, welcome back to Chat of the Matters. Thank you, Tony. Happy to be here. What a great episode. You know, Dr. Reverend Gordon Postle. He's First of all, he's he's got his doctorate, but the beginning of his life, he can't even get through the second and third year of university. He gets caught up in drugs and alcohol, chasing women, playing pool, and he ends up quitting school. And as he said, instead of taking the train to university, I took the train up to the mines where I became a nickel miner. And that just created even more of a downward spiral. So first of all, talk to me about humans that are kind of on that that fence between trying to find their path in life and getting consumed by maybe the demons in life. What happens when you fall off that fence? Is it more often than not, the patterns get worse? Very few of us know how to ground ourselves in what really matters from a young age. That's a, that's a real rare thing. And so I think that the transition from adolescence into adulthood, we're trying to find ourselves. And sometimes we find things that light us up, but then realize it's a short-term gain for a whole lot of long-term pain. A lot of our development is based on sort of this this true sense of self-awareness and really realizing what works for us, what allows ourselves to be the best version of ourselves, and then as opposed to what renders us almost a shell of a human being. Gordon writes his book, Calling, A Long Shot Journey, and he talks about one moment when he's in this room he was renting, and he just picks up this old weathered Bible, not that he's religious, but he just gets so impacted by the words that he suddenly decides to change complete direction in his life and become a pastor. But what's really quite amazing is that he finds himself spending most of his life working in hospices, working with people that are really suffering. And he said why he thinks it was his calling was the fact that he lived 
a lot of the life that many were going through. Do you find that that's common, that people that work in addiction clinics and work with people that are suffering uh, very often come in there with in their knapsack as experiences similar to the to the patients? Absolutely. One of my first internships was in a addiction treatment center located in Toronto. And I would say that easily at least 80% of the addiction counselors had experienced addiction themselves. I think especially with, with a topic like substance abuse that is so riddled in shame and misunderstanding and isolation, abandonment, loneliness, when you've kind of come through the other side there is a profound desire to reach out and support others that are in this world that can feel so, so dark. So I do think it's common. And, you know, even within our own organization, we talk a lot about making purpose out of pain, which sometimes feels almost flippant. But the truth of it is that we're dedicated to that because each of us as clinicians, we experienced generational trauma. We experienced generational mental health issues. We've experienced generational substance abuse issues. And so we are quite seriously committed to supporting people through the darkest moments of their lives. So I see it in this gentleman's story, and I certainly see it amongst myself and my peers and my colleagues. What gives you the strength not to fall back into where they are? It really does take work. I don't think there's this, you kind of transition over and then you're suddenly a better human being. It's it's not that. It really is a commitment to self-awareness, self-development, continuing to prioritize your wellness and monitoring the health of your friendships, your relationships, your workplace. So I don't think you get sober and then you're suddenly fine. No, it, it continues to be a daily practice. Um, and I think the community really matters. I think that surrounding yourself with people that are truly rallying for your health and your wellness and want you to be vibrant can make all the world of a difference. And the other thing, Tony, is that we slip up. You know, whether it's an outburst of of anger, whether it's, you know, people that use again and life doesn't work in a linear way. That's just not how things operate. And so it's also learning that when we slip, how to pick ourselves back up. So Amy, you got to do me a favor because every time I have you on the show, I have to answer dozens of emails asking me, how do I get hold of this girl? I love what she has to say. So we are at torontowellnesscounseling.com and we have the most beautiful, diverse, vibrant team that again, very much committed to making purpose out of our pain, really not wanting to be defined by our weaknesses. And we're also on Instagram at Toronto underscore wellness and we're happy to connect and and just rally people along this journey of life. Amy Deacon, you know I'm gonna call on you time and time again because each time you deliver. Can't wait, Tony. Thank you so much. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.